Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Today, we're going to share with you a conversation between Globe feature writer Ian Brown and Al Edmansky. Al has been an advocate for people with disabilities ever since the birth of his daughter, Liz, who has Down syndrome. Of the 6 million Canadians living with a disability, around 850,000 of them who are working age live below the poverty line. But thanks to Al's years of work, Canada is now seriously considering the creation of the Canadian Disability Benefit, which would make global history by guaranteeing an annual income above the poverty line for individuals with disabilities. You're listening to The Decibel. Hi, Al. Hi, Ian. Al, most people don't know what the Canada Disability Benefit is. What is it precisely, and how much of a boost will it give people who get it? Ian, maybe the best way to describe it is to allude to something that uh, all Canadians are aware of, which is the Old Age Security Benefit and the Guaranteed Income Supplement. So the Guaranteed Income Supplement, when it was implemented, was uh, an additional payment for uh, people who received the old age security. So it was an income supplement. And it, by the way, effectively ended poverty for seniors. So the Canada Disability Benefit is a income supplement, a cash supplement to people with disabilities on top of the provincial and territorial social assistance benefits that they currently get. I've heard that if this guaranteed disability benefit goes through, that the poverty problem in Canada is sufficient amongst disabled people, that if this goes through, it would actually reduce poverty in Canada in general by 40%. Yeah, it, that's absolutely true. At Disability Without Poverty, we use the 40% number. We've been doing some poking around <laughs> with Stats Canada and with the Federal Public Service, and uh, that leads us to believe that it could actually reduce poverty overall in Canada by as much as 50%. So yeah, that 40 to 50%, it's astounding, isn't it? Our own estimate is that there's a, at minimum about one and a half million Canadians with disabilities who are and who are getting poorer and poorer. But uh, as a result of the pandemic, I think it's now clearer than ever that uh, the last big gap in our safety net is uh, resolving the issue of poverty experienced by Canadians with disabilities. So who qualifies as disabled and how much money do they currently get a month and how much will they get as a result of this? I know these are very, very hard numbers to quantify because it's not legislation yet. There are vagaries that everything changes from province to province. But in general, who qualifies as disabled and how much do they get these days? Well, that would take an awfully long time to answer properly, uh, Ian, so I'll I'll just try and give you a a snapshot. Canada passed the Accessible Canada Act a couple of years ago. Uh, I think, by and large, most people in the disability world appreciate uh, that act and appreciate the definition of disability associated with it. So it involves the disabilities that are visible, Uh, people with physical disabilities, uh, people with uh, intellectual or developmental disabilities, mental illness, 
as well as invisible disabilities that uh, aren't as obvious, but are uh, nonetheless uh, as debilitating in terms of the extra challenges that people face. So then someone with a, a serious and, you know, a, a permanent disability that means they cannot work, how much money would they get in a province like BC or Ontario now before the benefit? Yeah, it's a, good, it's a really good question. And, and so these are all provincial or territorial decisions. And so they, they vary in Canada from roughly $900 a month to uh, about $1,800 uh, a month and way below the poverty line and even further below uh, the disability poverty line. Right, right. In Toronto, the poverty line is about $2,200. That's $2,700 if you add 500 bucks for the disability quotient. And, and you're saying people might come in with 1600 So that's a serious amount of money every single month. It's, a, it's very serious. And then um, for basic survival, for food, uh, for clothing, for shelter, uh, for some kind of life, let alone the extra costs you pay related to your medical needs, uh, related to adaptive equipment or mobility devices or other health costs and expenses that aren't covered by the system. Yeah. And here we're not even talking about, you know, quality of life, what we all, what we all want. Right. Now, some people, uh, and I have to admit, some of them inhabit the comments section of the Globe and Mail's uh, website. Some people are going to call this welfare. Is it welfare, this new top-up? I think it is fulfilling uh, our obligations as a society to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to participate uh, and to contribute to society. Her research indicates that People with disabilities spend every penny they get in the local economy. So it's actually an economic driver. So I see no reason for using an out-of-date term like welfare. I mean, that goes back to Charles Dickens. We're way beyond that in Canada. We're a country that believes in ensuring that all citizens do their bit, participate uh, on an equal level. Yeah, lots of people have made the economic argument for it. And it's not like disabilities are anyone's fault. But there is, and we've seen it in the mere fact that this has taken so long to come about, and it's at the moment semi-stalled in Parliament. But there is something to this notion that there's a collective resistance to this idea that we should support people with disabilities. And this is a resistance that goes back not just years, it, it goes back centuries. It sort of implies that they're at fault. Where does that that blaming come from? Where did that all start? I think one of the deep-seated notions in our culture is the refusal to admit our vulnerability. So I think that's one of the reasons. Uh, the disability population is so large that it astounds me that it has taken this long for society to recognize their collective responsibility to people with disabilities. Yeah. Um, in fact, the government of Canada is the first government in the world to say, uh, we're going to do something about disability poverty. And, you know, they made a promise a year ago, September. We understand it's going to be reintroduced and there's been several public commitments. Right. If you look at the history of the world and removed the contributions of people with disabilities, uh, you wouldn't recognize the world again. You know, I think of John Milton, whose treatises on defense of free speech, freedom of the press, religion, assembly, 
uh, were written when he was blind. Yeah, and don't forget Paradise Lost. You know that that little yeah, short exactly. poem. That, that's also quite quite good. And uh, one of the signers of the American Declaration of Independence was Stephen Hopkins, and a man with cerebral palsy. I mean, I could go out throughout history and look at the existing contributions of people. It's the same with musicians throughout time. We pay no attention to them, or if we pay attention to them, we pay no attention to the disability. So we mm-hmm. kind of wipe that side of it off. So <laughs> notwithstanding this prejudice and this mythology and this discrimination, people with disabilities have been making phenomenal contributions that have advanced progress, uh, that have advanced the economy, that have advanced culture, that advanced our collective well-being throughout history. That's the yeah. irony here. It's not like they haven't been doing contributions. started advocating for people with disabilities, they were mostly living in huge institutions, institutions that you had a hand in closing down in BC. What were those places like? Can you describe it? Well, first of all, the majority of people with disabilities have always lived in the community, but there was uh, a significant portion of the population, people with intellectual disabilities particularly, who were living in big institutions. Um, I mean, describe one of the last times I was in an institution because I refused to go anymore. I went to a place where the staff proudly showed me literally wheeling people with no clothes on in metal gurneys down the hallway to these big tubs where they were washed. Uh, And I I don't mean to sound, uh, you know, disrespectful for, but almost hosed down. It was and barely dried off, put back on these cold gurneys until everybody, you know, in that group was washed uh, and then wheeled down to a hallway with hospital-type gowns on and put on mats in a room with a TV in one corner high up that wasn't even focused. And that was their day. You know, the incidents of abuse, of neglect, of, uh, of mistreatment, of subhumanization that went on in those places was horrendous. And uh, I'm glad that most of those places are closed down. So you helped move those people in BC into the community, into group homes, into homes within the smaller, you know, more personal communities. And, And in fact, most of your work has been dedicated to giving people with disabilities more autonomy, more control. Even so, I have a son who lives in a group home, and it's a very good one. It has great care, and I visited lots and lots and lots of group homes. But there aren't many that feel like they belong to a community, like a place where they have enough agency yeah. to set the the tone or the ethos of the place yeah. in such a way that, that an outsider would long to visit there. Why is that? Why does that sense of community, why is it so hard to find? Well, not only people long to visit there, Ian, but long long to live there. So, you know, that's the, the thing about, uh, you know, a resilient society. It is a, it's a combination of the, of the community, neighbor, family, friends support 
on the one hand and the, the kind of professional program supports on the other. And getting that balance right is absolutely critical. If the balance is uh, too much in favor of the, the role of programs and professional staff, then you lose out on that sense of community, on that sense of belonging. It seems to be the difficulties in accepting the world that in the past we've called, you know, that other world. We seem to have a, a hard time um, accepting that as, uh, as just as valid a place. And it makes me want to ask you, I mean, obviously, people with disabilities can benefit hugely from real inclusion of the kind you're talking about, not just care, but, but community as well. But I want to ask you, do the rest of us benefit as well? I want, you know, the awareness of contributions to be broader than simply that they're there to somehow make us better, <laughs> people who don't have disabilities. So if you just simply take the musical contributions of people with disabilities throughout history, or the democratic, uh, the advancement of democracy achievements of people with disabilities throughout history, um, you would realize that if we didn't have that music or those treatises, you know, that we would be in a much sorrier state than we are collectively as society. So let's start with the premise that society benefits collectively from the contributions of people with disabilities. And then secondly, to your point about are there things about living life as a person with a disability that are useful for people like you and I who may have this incorrect belief that we are fully autonomous and that we don't need to, uh, whether it's to slow down, recognize our vulnerability, recognize our interdependence. Yes, yeah, that's true to, uh, as well. It happens. And I think many people with disabilities would want us to appreciate that life can be lived to the fullest, notwithstanding those challenges, and that life has meaning and reason and purpose, uh, regardless of uh, what uh, the world has in store with us that relates to having a disability. My wife, Johanna, refers to that as the Gandhi thing, and she resents it, you know, that anybody with a disability should should have to be, you know, Mahatma himself to, uh, but, that, but that I'm was trying to get at a, a very inarticulately at a, at a kind of psychological need, I think that the rest of the world has. I, I want to just touch on one other thing that, that you accomplished that I think was overlooked. You were responsible for creating registered disability savings plans, which is basically an RRSP for people with, with serious disabilities. Not that many of them can afford to put anything in it, which is another reason the, the benefit, the top-up is necessary. But you lobbied for that RDSP for 12 years. I mean, that deserves a prize on its own. Who resisted <laughs> it? Well, again, it wasn't just me, but it was it was led by PLAN, um, the organization my wife and I founded, the Planned Lifetime Advocacy Network. And uh, it then spread across the country. It was kind of a grassroots uh, movement. Uh, yeah, it, it took a long time. It was kind of a, a three different prime ministers, <laughs> Chrétien, Martin, and Harper, before we got it. Um, and, and I think that the toughest challenge was that as people assume that if you had a disability, what you needed was a program and a service or an equipment, and that was all. And those are all important. 
But life is so much more than a life inside a service or inside a program. The purpose of adaptive equipment and mobility devices is so you can get out there and show the world what you can do to have purpose and meaning and to do your thing. So the equation between poverty and disability wasn't generally out there. We, we found that we had, what we had to do was market, if you will, if I could put it this way, is sell is the understanding that people with disabilities were poor. And that if you fix that, a whole lot of things got fixed related to what they saw themselves as needing to make their way in the world. But don't you worry that if you present this as, you know, the big top up, this gets you above the poverty line, you know, this is, this is going to bring you up to where you need to be, that the premiers of at least certain provinces, I don't want to mention any name, but they're easily imaginable, are going to say, okay, you know, clean my hands, you're set, and take away or claw back a lot of other stuff. I mean, is that a danger here? Yeah, it's a worry. But uh, certainly in our, you know, work with Disability Without Poverty and work of many other groups, um, you know, it's very clear to us that the federal government won't let that happen and that whatever agreement happens between the federal and a provincial or a territorial government will have to be an ironclad agreement that um, all of the benefits that people with disabilities currently get, first of all, are maintained, and secondly, can't be slightly eroded over time. So we'll have to sort that out, uh, but that's doable, I think. Um, so it's a worry, uh, but there is a solution to that worry, Ian. All right. And you you think there's there are good odds of this being passed? I mean, it was dropped from the order paper because of the election. It was not mentioned in last fall's throne speech. The prime minister mentioned it at the beginning of December on International Disabilities Day, but the government is completely, seems to have its hands full passing the childcare initiative at the moment. It, it might be one good idea too many, but you seriously think there are good odds that this will get passed sometime soon? Well, the, the daycare agreement that you're talking about actually is almost concluded now with virtually every province and, and territory signed on, Ian. So his hands won't, won't be as full. The Prime Minister wrote a mandate letter to Minister Carla Qualtro, who's responsible for the design and delivery of the benefit. And it was about as clear as it could possibly be that her job was to move this forward in a very, very timely way. And and the minister herself has indicated that they've already begun work on the design. We have talked to senior public servants who are responsible. They've begun work on the design. So we've got momentum. So I'm, I'm very optimistic. So if it does pass, how much right do we have to feel good as a country? Does that give Canada unique or special bragging privileges? And, and what is it we should be proud of? First of all, we should be proud of living up to our commitments, you know, with the UN Conventions on the Right of People with Disabilities. We should be proud of that. We should be proud of the momentum that goes from the disability Registered Disability Savings Plan to the Canada Accessibility Act. But you could argue that that's what we should be doing. On the world stage, this is really setting the standard that no other country has even spoken about. So, yeah, we will be very, very proud of making this a reality of effectively ending poverty for roughly a million and a half Canadians who shouldn't be poor. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. 
Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer. And Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks to Al Edmansky and our Globe feature writer, Ian Brown. You can also email us at thedecibel at globeandmail.com. If you want to reach me, I'm on Twitter at RW. And if you haven't already, please follow The Decibel wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.